Thank you, Lori. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see all of you, be back here again. It's always a privilege for me to be able to come and to uh, study what you all have been studying and to teach on it for a little bit. Uh, So this morning we have uh, the gospel being spread to the Gentiles. That's the lesson for today out of uh, Acts 9, 10, and 11. So I think I'll pray for us to begin. Lord, thank you uh, for the gifts that you give to your body. Thank you for uh, Katie and how she can lead week by week in these songs that lift our hearts and our minds to you. And uh, we've been reminded that we need you, Lord. We need you every hour. And uh, this hour is not any different than that. We need you to illumine your word and to really work in us that we would be open and pliable, receptive to you. We pray for all those that are caring for children and teaching them. Uh, Give them uh, hearts uh, of concern and interest and also words to be able to share as they teach. And we pray that this time uh, will be instructive uh, and memorable uh, because you have met us here and because you have uh, enlivened your word in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. So this passage this morning, as I'm sure all of you realize uh, from the study that you've done, is pivotal in the story of Scripture, uh, in the story of the New Testament. This is a doorway to something new that is happening in the story of uh, God's people. Uh, two nights ago, my wife and I were on the phone with our son Ian, who's a senior at IU, uh, and he told us that he had decided to accept a particular job that he was offered. So that was one of those moments. We'd done a lot of thinking and talking for a long time about his future and options, et cetera, et cetera. And we came to that moment when um, he had worked through a lot of things and said, I've decided I'm going to take this job. So that's a doorway for him. He's either going to go this way or he's going to go that way. He goes through that door and it opens up possibilities and really his entire future through that. So I just wondered if in your life, if you could just reflect for a moment and think on a significant time when you went through a doorway that opened up a new beginning. So after you made a choice or experienced something, that after that, it was different. And it defined the rest of your life from there. So that's, that's what we're talking about this morning, is when something brand new happens. It might have been hinted at, might have been hoped for, but when it occurs, things are different. And this account of Peter and Cornelius is one of those rare occasions in the Bible, because not all days and times are the same, right? And this is one of those moments where it's a hinge and things become quite different. Uh, I think two weeks ago, it was uh, Kathy Gurley who spoke out of uh, chapter 9 in Acts on the conversion of that great New Testament missionary, Saul, changed, gets his name changed to Paul. This morning we're reading about a close friend of Jesus who left home and who was compelled to tell others about Jesus' unique life and what he had to offer. So we're switching from Paul to Peter here in in, uh, Acts 9. I think you can see on your outline that uh, I I think most of you picked up for today, just the basic overview. We'll just go through um, 
second half of chapter 9 up through the first half of chapter 11, so there's actually a lot of text here. We'll talk about the miraculous works of God through Peter, then the accounts of Cornelius and Peter receiving their visions, uh, and then the third point will be Christ proclaimed to the Gentiles when Peter actually speaks uh, to Cornelius and his family and friends, and then then when Peter returns to Jerusalem, how the believers respond to this news of what has happened. And then lastly, we'll, we'll talk about what our response. So how did the believers at that time respond to the situation? And then we'll talk about how we can respond ourselves to these kinds of things. So let's take a look at um, chapter 9. It starts in verse 32. <clears throat> the miraculous works of God through Peter. We're not going to read all of this text because it's, uh, it's just so, so many verses. What we find here in this first, uh, the first part of the lesson is that Peter is traveling in Palestine. He's traveling north and west of Jerusalem. And then Luke records here in the book of Acts two miracles. Aeneas is healed from paralysis and Tabitha is raised from the dead. Um, and it's amazing how these stories can be told here. I can just say the sentence that I just said. And yet I can grow callous to the miracles that God works, right? Because we all live underneath uh, rules, um, natural laws, uh, expectations, things we can't get out from underneath because we're finite and because we're human. Yet God can intervene. God, God can do something different. And we have lots of accounts of that in the Bible. And I can grow callous to that. It's like, oh, another miracle. Oh, there's somebody else raised from the dead. I mean, unbelievable because these are real people this is right this is someone's daughter or friend this is a neighbor this is a cousin who was sick and died and then came back and can you imagine in 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 the town of Joppa the response that something like that would have or someone who's has paralysis paralysis is is changed is, is healed so these kinds of things are astounding works of God these miracles that happen and that is to remind us that there is an invisible realm. And of course we know this, but I don't know how I forget about this. That there is an invisible being who made this world. All, all of these physical things that we have. He made all of this. He is sovereign over it. We are accountable to him. And he reminds of, us of that. But every so often he will interject himself in these miraculous ways. Of course, Jesus' life, his miracles, his resurrection. These apostles are living, right, in the stream of that, and then they're gifted to be able to do the same thing. So uh, Bible students have wondered why Luke put these two accounts in this section between Paul's conversion and the gospel going to the Gentiles. Why would he want to squeeze these two things in? Uh, in a lot of ways, they act as a bridge to the story of the Gentiles hearing the gospel. And they demonstrate the widening of the mission geographically. You remember in Acts 1.8 that uh, Jesus had told them start in Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was the mission that they were given. And so it's an ever-widening circle from Jerusalem. Now they're in Judea and now they're into Samaria. So it shows that they are reaching out. Secondly, it says that Peter uh, remained in Joppa for many days with Simon the Tanner. So that's evidently a friend of his, someone who he came to know. He stays in his home, and he's a tanner, which is someone who uh, was considered unclean by the rabbis because his job was to take hides, skins of animals, to treat them uh, so, that to, so they became leather. 
Now, this was something that had to handle unclean animals, blood, the kinds of things that Jewish people were not involved with. So here's Peter staying with a man in his home. Presumably, that, a lot of that work was right there on that property or in that home. So again, it's ideologically getting closer to Jewish people, Jewish believers being around Gentiles, being around things that are unclean. So through these accounts, Luke provides a significant preface to the expansion beyond the Jewish people. So then we come in chapter 10 to the accounts of Peter and Cornelius, and we start with Cornelius' vision. So I think I'll read these first eight verses of chapter 10, which is the uh, second part uh, on your outline. Now there was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who, was, who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come, in, who had just come into him and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze upon him, And being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a certain tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had departed... He summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were in constant attendance upon him. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So God wants Cornelius to engage with Peter. And he arranges this by presenting a vision first to Cornelius. And he says, dispatch some men down to the city of Joppa and go get this man, Simon Peter. He tells him where he'll be staying. So, I think it was one of the questions in your, in your study guide. What impressions do you have of Cornelius? What kind of a man is he presented to us? It says he's God-fearing, that he's devout. He's generous, right, because he's giving of his, uh, he's a good steward. He's giving of his money, his uh, alms. He's a man of prayer. <clears throat> Seems that he would have some prominence ahead of a, a hundred Roman soldiers. He was a, a wealthy man. He was well-paid. So you can just picture this kind of person that is capable of issuing a summons to someone, right? I don't know if you ever do this. If you say, go to Bloomington and go get Fred and tell him to come see me, right? But if the head of a cohort, a centurion, sends a soldier someplace and says, I want you to come see my centurion, you go and you go see that centurion because he's a Roman soldier, has tremendous authority, And he can back that up then, right? So, powerful man, but yet deeply respected for his character and for a God-fearing man. So, it doesn't really explain exactly what it means that he's God-fearing in this polytheistic culture with Roman gods and different worldviews. And here's a man who is a monotheist. He believes in one God and he fears him and he prays to him. And he seems to have some respect for the Jewish culture and for those people. So, however he came to be this kind of man of character and of faith in one God, this is the person whom God selected 
to be in that doorway to all of us Gentiles hearing and receiving the gospel. And it's interesting that just in the chapter before, um, we can contrast Cornelius with Paul, right? So, or Saul. So we have Saul, the spiritually, spiritually blind Jewish leader who's persecuting God's people. And you compare that to this devout Gentile soldier. And so well, what we know is that God will use people for his purposes. Use someone who's blind and is actually accusing the church and harming them and tracking them down. And he'll use a person who doesn't yet know him but is seeking him. And so that tells me that he will be able to utilize me. He will seek me out. Do the same for you. I think I would generally rather be Cornelius than Saul, right? I mean, since God seeks us and wants to utilize us for his purposes, it'd be better for him not to have to knock me off of my horse, right, in order to be used by him. So that's a, a little instructive there about who Cornelius is. So simultaneous to, simultaneous to Cornelius' vision, God is addressing Peter. So in verse 9, and on the, next, on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he beheld the sky opened up and a certain object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were all, in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So Peter is at his friend's house. He goes up on the housetop uh, to spend time in prayer. It's so interesting, he became hungry, right, in the midst of his prayer. And then he goes into a trance. And so somehow being hungry relates to this vision that he receives of these animals coming down, unclean animals that as a Jewish person, he's not supposed to be consuming. And he's told, kill them and eat them. And then later, he said, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And then this happened three times. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you or not in Peter's life, that something happens to him three times. So he denies Christ three times, right, before the cock crows. And then when Jesus, after his resurrection, he speaks directly, right? So men appeared to him, and they said to him, we come from Cornelius, he's righteous, he's a God-fearing man, he's well spoken of by the nation of the Jews. So they give context, and they said, he, he wants you to come see him. And so Peter gives them lodging. Well, I wonder what that evening must have been like. What's that conversation with these three men who come and with Peter and, and, and the, 
his friends or the disciples that are around him? What, what kind of information would they exchange with each other? What, but what is, what is God doing here? What does that vision mean? What does this other one mean? And he would talk about the sheet coming down and the animals. And it, scripture is just so interesting. The situations that it sets up and then is silent about. And that's why it's good to reflect. That's why we're called to read and then sit there. Right? And just imagine... What is going on in these people's lives? And what, what has God set up for them, their eyes to be open to his purposes? Well, they left the next day. Um, and I wonder what kind of impressions um, you have of Peter in this situation. Receives this incredible vision in the midst of a trance. Immediately, visitors come and he understands that these things are linked together and God has a purpose for him. What's his response to that? Well, he's obedient, right? And we remember Peter from the Gospels when he was walking and living with Jesus that uh, he was known as impulsive and self-willed, right? He was the one who would cut off the ear in the garden. He's the one that would answer Jesus back very quickly and sometimes disagree with him. And he's the one who would put forth his opinion, the self-willed person. Yet in this situation, even though he's perplexed, he's uncertain, he's obedient. And through the power of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost and through training and through his faithfulness, he understands, I'm going to do what the Lord's showing me to do. So the account continues with Peter and the group arriving at Caesarea. And so then thirdly, we see that Peter is now um, at Caesarea. He comes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius has gathered his close friends and family. So another great scene. This prominent, powerful man gets his family, gets his friends, and they're waiting for Peter to come. When Peter comes, he bows down. Remember that? He actually bows down to him out of respect. Peter says, I'm just a man. Stand up. Peter reminds him that it's unusual for him to even be in a Gentile's house. So we have this theme constantly of this separation, division between God's people and those who are outside of the fold, the Gentiles. What to eat, what not to eat. Who to talk to, whose hand to shake, whose home to be in. All those kinds of things really um, mark the Jewish lifestyle. God had uh, taught him uh, not to call anyone unclean or unholy. That's what Peter says. God has told me not to call anyone unclean or unholy. Well, there's a movement there, right? Because we read, what did God actually tell him? What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy, talking about the food. And yet Peter understands it's not just about the religious rituals and the rites that we have of cleanliness. It's actually people as well. That I can eat certain foods, but I also can associate with all kinds of people. It makes me wonder if Peter remember, remembered how Jesus reached out to Gentiles. Jesus was a Jew. He obviously came first to his, to his people, to his nation. But in the midst of that, you could see him reaching out. Right? Remember the centurion. I wonder if Peter remembered that Jesus talked to a centurion who came to him and said, I need healing. And, and, but you don't even need to come 
with me. Jesus, all you have to do is just say the word and he'll be healed. So he, he had met a centurion of faith earlier. In other cases, a Samaritan woman at the well and those kinds of things. So Cornelius gives his account of what happened and then he invites Peter to speak. And he says, now we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So this is the moment, this is the setup. Tell us, Peter, what God has for us. And then we can see starting in 10, verse 34, what Peter has to say. Verse 34 says, and opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. So where did that idea come from? Is this the first time that Peter has ever heard that kind of notion? Or responded to that? Well, you probably remember when Jesus left his followers, he, left, he gave them these departing words. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus had already said to Peter and the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say, go travel and make disciples of the Jewish people you find in the nations. Make disciples of all people groups, of all nations. 2,000 years earlier, Peter knew that these words had been given to Abraham in Genesis 12, that all the world will be blessed, Abraham, through you. Through your seed, all the world would be blessed. And this is the prophecy that the Messiah will come, Jesus Christ will come, and it will extend to the whole world. 700 years earlier, Isaiah proclaimed in chapter 49, verse 6, about this coming Messiah. This was also referenced in your study. God says about the Messiah, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Jesus, the promised one of God, came to bring salvation to all people. Abraham is told through Abraham. Isaiah explains this. Jesus explained it. And now Peter is able to say, I now most certainly understand what God has been promising for over 2,000 years. And now it's coming to fruition through Jesus Christ. And I am here to deliver to you the news about Jesus Christ. What a privilege that was for him. He explains the life and ministry of Jesus to these people who might not have known. You'd think they probably would have heard about it, but he gives some details uh, about his life. And then he says, Jesus is the judge and Jesus is the forgiver. So he's not just a wise man and a teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just one who was risen from the dead. He is the judge of all people and he is the one who can forgive you as well after judging you. 
That's reminiscent of the memory verse for today, isn't it? Out of uh, chapter 4. That this, is, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who's be- who has become the cornerstone for their salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the message that Peter came to deliver. Then, amazingly, the Holy Spirit falls upon these Gentiles. So you have the, the Pentecost experience all over again. And they're speaking in tongues and they're exalting, glorifying, praising God. So if, again, you just put yourself in that moment. Who you, who, as a Jewish person who's now a follower of Jesus, you now see the people whom you think are separated from God, who you're not even supposed to be dealing with, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they're worshiping Jesus. And they, they now are your brothers and sisters and you now belong to them. What an incredible experience for Peter and for those men uh, and or women, it doesn't say, who went, who went to be with him. And then because of that, he says, oh, how can we refuse baptism? How can we refuse to baptize them? These are full believers in our Lord, and so then they're baptized. Of course, the news spread that the Gentiles had received the word and the spirit and baptism. And Peter then eventually came to Jerusalem, and he reports on this event. So then we, we find out what the Jewish believers, what their response is to this. And some of them, as we might expect, if you didn't know the whole story and the occasion, they took issue with Peter. So it's a really good question is, how could these believers trust Peter? That what he did was really of God and not something that he uh, arranged just out of his own understanding or his own convictions. And so Peter tells the story so to encourage them that they can trust what has happened, that this is actually of God. And so he, the first thing would be, it, it's Peter. You can trust this because I am Peter uh, and I walked with Jesus and I'm filled with the Spirit and he's using me miraculously to raise people from the dead. God is in my life and God is leading me. So you can trust this because I'm Peter. Then but it's more than that, there's a simultaneous vision with Cornelius. So this person we would never expect to receive a vision and to be seeking God. God gives him a vision at the same time he gives me a vision to be able to show that there's something happening here more than this happening to just one person. And then the Holy Spirit falls upon these Gentile believers. And that's not something that Peter cooked up. That's not a plan of his. That's the stamp, the approval of God upon them. And of course, then we have eyewitnesses as well, right? That Peter didn't go alone and do this. We have other people who have participated in all of this. So in light of this movement of God in this astounding way, verse 18 records their, resp- their response after they hear all of this. Remember, they're skeptical. Peter tells them what happened. Verse 18 in, in chapter 11, and when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So centuries of religious practices that certain foods were clean or unclean, separation from non-Jewish people as essential, this understanding that everyone outside the circle of the chosen people were forever cut off from God, that all comes to an end in that moment for these people. 
They received it from the Lord and they believed it. Now, it's going to take some time for them to work that into their lives and into the life of the church, right? Cultural differences, religious differences. And we see that throughout the book of Acts and into the letters of Paul as well. What, what does it mean to be Jewish and a Christian? What's it mean to be a Gentile and a Christian? Is there a difference? Do these Gentiles now need to be circumcised? Et cetera, et cetera. How much of our Jewishness continues? Those things will get worked out uh, in the book of Acts and in the letters. But in this moment, they embrace that, right? They realize this is of God. This has been promised through Abraham, through Isaiah, and through Jesus the Messiah. We cannot stop this. We cannot fight it. It is the movement of God to all people. Of course, we're grateful. Most of us are Gentiles, <laughs> or Gentile heritage, right? This is, where we, this is where we were grafted in as well. Um, let's just talk about our response to this um, and then we'll uh, split to be, able, to be able to go to your groups and discuss these things I just uh, th- wanted to mention three different kinds of responses that could relate to us specifically out of this story one is um, when we are tempted to close off others to Jesus Christ in the same way that we understand that Peter Uh, and the people surrounding him in that young church. The challenge they had in being open-minded about others. Uh, We, ourselves, need to understand that the doorway has been opened to all. All people, everywhere. And the question comes to us, are are there those whom we tend to set aside in our own minds, in our own relationships, that we set aside or that we tend to close off? Who in your life, who's in your life, that you would not want to be in your home? I mean, you know them, you relate to them, but in your heart of hearts, you're really not going to have them into your house. Because if you're honest with yourself, you feel better than, or different than, or something's going on that you're just not really going to have them uh, associate you with you is there a kind of person that you're glad isn't in your church so these these are penetrating questions and maybe you're better than me i hope you are that you you've never thought of these things you don't have these things that go on in your heart when you observe other people i wonder who bothers you what person or kind of person just instantly sets you off and I don't even need to give categories because there's be all kinds of categories. And there, there might be someone like that for you. And if there is you, I mean, you know who it is. It's already, it's already come to your mind what that kind of person is. And sometimes um, we can be dark enough in our hearts that we actually don't want that kind of person to be forgiven. We almost want them to get what they deserve. But Peter came to say, I most certainly understand now that God does not show partiality. But in every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. I don't know if there's some people that you know or that you observe of whatever kind of person. And you actually don't want them to do right. You actually don't want them to repent. You don't want them to get better. You don't want them to experience the mercy of God. And that 
cuts against the lesson that we have here. And so our action at that point is to pray for them, pray for ourselves, for our own heart, and then to reach, right? to go across that boundary like Peter did with the love of Christ because we're the same way. We're the ones who deserve things of God's judgment, but we haven't received them through Christ. And so everyone, we should view everyone that way. Uh, a second response is when we're blessed, when you experience the blessings of God in your life. Many, many of the Jews misunderstood the scope and the purposes of the blessings that they were receiving. They were God's chosen people, not only for their own sake. And this is something that's very easy for us to, to trip up, to get tripped up over. God's care and goodness is to be received and to be appreciated and then become a means to others being blessed. So you get the flow, right? God, out of his graciousness and kindness, chooses to give me a blessing. I am then to receive that from him. Don't think I'm the source of it. It's him. And then appreciate that. Walk with him in it. But then I'm supposed to take that and spread it, continue the flow, pass it to someone else. And the Jewish people, uh, often depicted in the, uh, in the scriptures, uh, didn't understand that. Blessings are not an end only. They're a means to something else. So, question for us would be, are there any gifts from God that I am hoarding? Keeping to myself. With what might I be characterized as stingy? Is there any way that I'm blocking the flow? So this can be material things, time, relationships. It can be all kinds of ways that I receive these things. And it stops with me. And this is what Peter learned. It doesn't stop with us. I walked with Jesus. He died for me. I met the resurrected Lord. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. My life is transformed. And I'm telling my people about it. And now I'm telling those that aren't my people. I'm not hoarding things to myself. So I'm sure there's a lot of lessons for the American church there, right? If you just think of believers around the world and all those kinds of things. Okay, last, lastly, when God unexpectedly brings his message home. When God unexpectedly brings his message home. The Jews in Jesus' time were challenged with what they'd already heard. These Jewish Christians had heard things, but it was being brought to them in new and in compelling ways. Some of them fell into a common trap. Some of the Jewish people. Salvation by association. They believed because they were related to Abraham, they were in the bloodline of God's chosen people, that they could be comfortable and confident in their relationship with God. In other words, they were in, and they knew that they were in because they belonged to God's people, biologically. John the Baptist addressed this in Matthew 3. He said, Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Salvation does not come to an individual by associating with those who know and love God. Each person must personally express trust in Christ 
Trust in God and then live out that relationship in obedience. This uh, reminds me of a friend of mine. Um, if you give me one story, I'll give you one story. <laughs> if you'll give me time to tell one story. I had a good friend who was a heart surgeon and he invited me to um, accompany him into surgery. And so he was doing this in Terre Haute. We drove over Terre Haute, spent the night, and then went in the morning to the hospital. And I became a heart surgeon in my mind. So we go, we go into the doctor's lounge, and we're just hanging out in the doctor's lounge uh, the doc, with the doctors. We go, we meet, meet the patient and his family, um, and I'm staying there and do that. Then we, then we scrub in, outfit, all the things, do all this. It's like I'm on TV. Go in. Go into the surgery room, and me and the team, we, we do the heart surgery, right? And I'm standing there, watch all of these things happen. And, and I actually started to think that I was part of the team doing the surgery because I had spent the day literally being a surgeon. So by association, I gave myself a prestige that did, literally didn't exist. I mean, it's hilarious, right? I, mean, I was invited in. And it, and it was a wonderful experience. But I was an observer. So, but I tricked myself and I just started feeling like I, I, was a, I was a part of what was going on. Us heart surgeons, we, we help a lot of people. <laughs> the same thing can happen spiritually because you can like the order and the beauty of a religious life. You can be around people who know and love Christ and who have a, a kind of experience and a kind of family life come to church, come to studies. And it's just, it's a marvelous place to be. And by association, I can feel things about myself that actually aren't real about me. So that's what the Jewish people did. We're Hebrews. We're God's people. I'm in. We don't want to fall into that same trap. I'm a religious person. I'm with other people who love Christ. I must love Christ. I must have faith in him. And this is a great time of year with Christmas, with the incarnation and all this going on to celebrate that, to make sure that you're not just associating with Christian people, but that you yourself have expressed that trust of him and that you hold that in your own heart and that you're able to live that. Okay. Well, those are the things that you can, besides everything else you have to talk about in your groups, you can think about those three things, not closing off others to Christ, being a conduit where your blessings can flow through to others and this idea of possessing genuine faith yourself. I'll pray for us. Lord, there's just uh, so much uh, in this passage for us to consider. We thank you for new beginnings. Thank you for hinges and doorways, uh, pathways that you allow to open up that we just didn't know were going to happen. Lord, we pray for things uh, in our lives that you've given us uh, hints or warnings that you've told us about that are real and true, but now we're just seeing them. Give us receptivity to those things, Lord, that we would receive from you the lessons and the truths and the relationships that you have for us. Fill us with your spirit that we would be believers uh, like the ones we're reading about here. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.